Church, I'm sure that none of us have anything in our past that we look back and have regrets about or feel guilty for or are ashamed of. I'm sure there's never been anything that we've done or has been done to us or that we've participated in and never any thoughts that we've had or or things that we've felt uh, that we look back on at a later date and just feel like, oh, I regret that. Oh, I feel guilty for that. Oh, I'm ashamed of that. But in the off chance that we are like every other human who has ever lived aside from Christ, I imagine there may be some of those things. I know there are for me, and I'm sure there most likely are for you as well. I look back and we have shame over things that we've said or done or felt or saw or thought. And... Um, Shame over even things that we've inherited, you know, a shame over our family, our family's reputation, people we're associated with, uh, children, siblings, uh, shame over uh, bad decisions, poor choices, uh, shame over sins that we've committed, sins uh, people have sinned against us. You know, this, this shame is like a, a powerful thing. And as so many of us can attest, those of us who have gone to therapy, those of us who have met with psychologists and therapists to try to work through things, a lot of times these things that are in our past, which we feel guilty or ashamed of, they linger, they stick with us, they they pop back up. And the good news is that these are exactly the sorts of things that Jesus promised to help us with. A lot of times people think of Jesus as just kind of saving our souls, And if you look in the Gospels, there were a lot of people who followed Jesus around just wanting a miracle, just wanting something physical. But in addition to looking to save souls and heal bodies, Jesus very specifically stated many times, and even the prophecies about him predict, that he would be the kind of Messiah that would bind up the brokenhearted. He would take hearts that are broken, and he would bind them up and help them to heal. And to kind of encapsulate this concept, I've had a a word that I've been using this week to help me understand. I'd like to use it in this conversation as well. It's the word unshamed. Unshamed. Not unashamed. You know, being unashamed would be, um, I'm not embarrassed. You know, be unashamed of your faith means I'm not embarrassed by Jesus. I'm proud of him. I'm, I'm confident. I want to talk openly. But unshamed speaks specifically to those who have experienced shame. And for all of us, the places in our lives and in our histories where we've experienced shame and having that taken away, having our poor little broken hearts bound up and mended so that we have been now by Christ unshamed. We are no longer shame-filled. Shame doesn't have its hooks in us. Shame is such a powerful thing. If we live in shame, We won't recognize any of the things that are cause for joy and beauty in our lives currently because we're under this black cloud and the weight from the past that needs to be taken off of us. We can't just say, oh, I wish it wasn't so. No, but Jesus is in the business of binding up the brokenhearted. We can be unshamed, which then maybe would cause us to be unashamed in our our sharing and our rejoicing in him. But the shame can keep us from... Um, seeing the beauty in the present, but it also can keep us from moving forward in the directions God would have us as apprentices of Christ. You know, if God has plans for us and our potential and our giftings and the people we'll encounter and the things we'll do in this world as missional people, as his hands and feet, a person who experiences shame looks at all the mistakes and says, well, I could never do anything right. 
I could never speak. I could never heal someone. I could never, God, how could God use me? God could never forgive me. So that, that shame not only robs us of the present, it also robs us of the future and, and, and blinds our eyes to hope of what God might do because we just see the things that we've done. I would like to read a specific prophecy from the Old Testament that talks about Jesus being the person to set his people free from shame and from guilt and from regret and all those things which hold us back, the sins of the past, whether it's our family and generational sins or whether it's our own mistakes that we've made. They're there and they're real, but they are the past and Jesus desires to set us free from those things. Jesus himself goes on to talk about it and I'll read it briefly from Paul who understands this concept of being set free from shame to experience hope and joy. Um, but the main topic of our conversation is one specific apostle, uh, the disciple Matthew, who I think uh, he only had a few things written about him in the Gospels as well. He doesn't have a lot of uh, focus and attention in the Gospel stories as they're written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the things that are written specifically in the Gospel that he wrote, where he refers to himself, I think we can see that there was a lot of shame in Matthew's life. You know, about him being a tax collector. And what is someone like that who experiences the shame of their job and maybe even the shame of them, themselves and their past? Uh, how does someone like that experience Christ? So I'd like to look at how Matthew himself was unshamed by Christ. And maybe it can be an inspiration to those of us who are struggling with feelings of shame. But even if we've experienced that or we're not wrestling with that in that heavy, weighty kind of way, could we be ambassadors for how Jesus can provide uh, deliverance, how Jesus can unshame people, because I know for a fact that there are those around us who experience guilt and their conscience is just heavy laden and shame becomes part of their identity rather than just history. Jesus does not want that. Jesus died to deliver us from things like that. And he cares about our emotions just as much as he cares about our souls and our bodies. So um, let me read to you a prophecy. I'll talk about the, what the Bible says about this being set free from shame. And then just focus on a few short passages from Matthew to hopefully learn from his example. So the prophecy that I'm mentioning here is in Isaiah 61. So in Isaiah, he's prophesying about the Messiah, the one who would come. Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat, in the, eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. And instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, 
they shall rejoice in their lot. And therefore in their land they shall possess a double portion and they shall have everlasting joy. Now when Jesus stands up at the very beginning of his ministry in his own hometown synagogue, I think it's in Luke chapter 4, he says, I've come, he reads this exact passage from Isaiah and says, I have come, this is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal. Like he claims this as himself. And notice in the prophecy, it's instead of shame, double portion. Instead of dishonor, rejoicing in their lot in life, in their lives. They shall have eternal, everlasting joy. Um, This is what Jesus came to bring us, joy in the Holy Spirit and freedom instead of, not Jesus in addition to our shame. He wants to take it away from us. And as I said, Paul himself mentions this concept of shame. Someone, Paul, who used to be called Saul, who pursued and killed Christians. If anyone has regrets, uh, reason to regret their past, to have a guilty conscience, to feel shame, it would be Paul. And yet he recognizes that God has made him new, has given him new life. He's been born again and the old is gone and the new has come. And so his hope doesn't put him to shame. And he writes that in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Paul writes, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Let me say that again. That's Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put us to shame. Our hope in what God's going to do does not leave us ashamed at the end because God does what he's going to do. So our hope will not leave us ashamed. Hope does not lead to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So we don't need to put aside our shame in order to be saved. We need to come to Jesus and say, please unshame me. Take this shame off of me. We can't do that on our own. We can't just say, oh, I wish that I wasn't ashamed or embarrassed of my past. I wish I didn't have a guilty conscience about these things that I said or thought at the time. And I look back, how could I have thought that? How could I have said that? How could I have done that? Well, that's the the weakness of the flesh. That's what we walk in our lives. And we need God to do a restoration project on us every step of the way. And he will reveal to us, oh, look at this. And we may even experience the moments of guilt. How could I have done that to you? We turn to him and say, please take that off. And we're given joy. That's the exchange. It's shame for joy. So, as I said... Matthew is a a wonderful case study in this, and not a lot is written about him, even his own gospel. He doesn't take a lot of time to focus on himself, but he does refer to himself even in specific ways that the other gospels don't. He includes specific things in his gospels that the other gospels don't. Um, The the commentator and scholar D.A. Carson wrote that the gospel of Matthew, uh, in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is more self-deprecating than in any of the other Gospels, how they speak about Matthew. So I'd like to read just the passages that we see from Scripture. There's only three or four of them. Uh, See how uh, he refers to himself. See the situations we find him in. And see a person who really experienced unshaming. Someone who had shame in their past and yet who God set free, and may he be an inspiration to us. So the first place that we are going to see him, uh, we're going to read, is um, in Matthew 9, and we'll start in verse 9. 
So the Gospel of Matthew, as early as, you know, 100, 120 AD, this was attested as being written by Matthew. The church had great consensus on its authorship. Uh, it doesn't say in the first verse, this is me, Matthew, writing, but it was who the church had known to be the author. And so as we read through Matthew, this is his eyewitness account. He was called by Jesus to follow. We will see his occupation as a tax collector, which means he was educated. He had to be with numbers and languages and multiple languages. He had to be at least literate in Aramaic, the local cultural language of um, Galilee, uh, as well as Greek. Uh, to be able to do translations, to be able to uh, write things to the Roman occupation, um, as well as to the Jewish leaders, and to take things from illiterate fishermen and write them down. So he was educated. And I think it's interesting in the, the exchanging of shame for hope that Jesus chose someone who was educated for worldly purposes and then turned around and used that education to make him an author of one of the books of the Bible, an author of the eyewitness, an eyewitness account of Jesus, an author of a gospel, the gospel of Matthew. So from Matthew's own words in Matthew 9, 9, he describes his calling, how Jesus found him. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Now, I'm going to stop for just a second. It doesn't say a man named Matthew. And this is interesting because in Mark and Luke, the other two Gospels that relate this calling of Matthew, he's called by his given name, Levi. Matthew was a Greek version of a Hebrew name that meant gift of Yahweh. I think it's very ironic that a tax collector would be called the gift of Yahweh. It was the name he was called. We're going to see that his given name was Levi, Levi, a priest of God named after the, the son of Jacob, the, the, the tribe of Levites who were in charge of the temple ministry. You know, it's an honorable name for a young Hebrew boy. And yet it says here he wasn't called Levi. He was called Matthew. And I wonder if even there's a bit of sarcasm in that name. Was he derisively called Matthew? Hey, look, it's the gift from Yahweh, this Jewish man who betrays us against the government by taking exorbitant taxes to fund the pagan government. You know, how would we think as Christians of a Christian who worked for a secular government in seemingly unethical ways that felt contrary to us and we didn't want to give money to fund these ungodly programs and policies and an empire and yet we felt compelled to because we were under the rule of this government and we have Christians then who say, you know, give money to this program or this thing, we're working on their behalf. We'd say, but that's an ungodly thing thing or that's a, a, a wicked or sinful thing. Why are you trying to take our money to give to fund that? You know, Caesar is not a God. And I wonder if there's just a, a really important parallel for us to be considering as Christians living in America in this time. You know, how convicted are we in our conscience about giving money to government, to certain policies and programs? Well, Jesus had that exact same sort of thing. And what if there was a Christian who stood in the gap and said, okay, all Christians give to this you know, insert non-Christian, you know, policy, program, whatever here, what would we do? And what would we think of that person who is trying to collect money from God's people to fund a secular government, even a government contrary to Christ? These are the things that Jesus wrestled with. His advice and wisdom is timely 
for all time. So let's just notice that this man, Matthew, was called the gift of Yahweh. He was called Matthew. He was a despised man. He was a sinner. As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Just like that. He was ready. He was a root out of shame to follow a rabbi. Someone would accept me. I'll leave and go. But they didn't leave the town. They went home for a feast. And Matthew invited all of his friends to meet Jesus. Because this man who had accepted him despite the guilt of his past, despite the shamefulness of his occupation, couldn't help but to say, look, there's a rabbi that will take in anybody. This is good news. So, verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in his house, behold, many tax collectors, many tax collectors and sinners, the shameful, the abandoned, the discarded, the outcast, the marginalized, many of those came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then even the disciples of John, John the Baptist, came to him and said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples are not fasting? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. And neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So right in this context of Matthew is where we get this teaching on the wineskins. There's new wine for a new time, a new way of experiencing God, which requires new practices and uh, new rituals and new disciplines and is inviting new kinds of people, which really goes back to the beginning is always the people, the outcasts the lesser that God has chosen. So Jesus is ushering in this new season. He teaches on wineskins. He talks about going to sinners, not to the righteous. It's all in the context of Matthew. And it's all spoken because Matthew was this, this person of peace, this link in the chain between Jesus and this whole community of people. So much like Andrew, Andrew was a connector. We talked about him. Matthew becomes a connector in this moment too. Come and see the person who accepted me despite myself. So if we move forward to Matthew chapter 10, we see uh, Jesus sending out the 12 disciples and there's a list of the disciples and I'd like to very specifically notice how Matthew names himself in this list. So Matthew 10 verse 1, Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, right? Called, his name is Simon, but he's called Peter, which means the rock, Cephas. He's going to build his church on that, that fisherman. <laughs> First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, 
and Thaddeus. Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go to the towns of Israel and call in the lost sheep. We recognize that Simon is called Peter, but how does Matthew identify himself? Matthew is the shameful tax collector. Even Judas, who would later betray him, is identified by his shameful behavior. Matthew, in his own list by himself, doesn't list anybody else by their occupations, especially if it's the worst sort of occupation. But he does for himself. That's the self-deprecating kind of theme that we see when Matthew speaks of himself, like Matthew the worthless, Matthew the shameful, that Jesus could accept even him. We notice also that right next to it, there's James, the son of Alphaeus. And we're going to keep that in mind because we see, um, we see very interesting things regarding that and possible connections to Matthew in the other places that he's mentioned. So just keep in mind, uh, in Mark and in Luke, they just say Matthew. It's just Matthew. They don't say Matthew the tax collector. But in his own gospel, he makes a point to say Matthew the lowly. But he doesn't handle himself and doesn't talk about himself as continuing on as worthless. It's sort of like, this is who Jesus called. Someone even like me. You know, some of the women who are prostitutes that Jesus called could say, you know, marry the prostitute. Like the, they're just defined by being brought up from such a low place. The fishermen may be uneducated, but Matthew was despised. It's interesting how he points that out in the list regarding himself. Now, if we move forward to Mark, there's something in Mark we'll read, and then something in Luke, and then we'll kind of step back and just think about it all together. When Mark and Luke <clears throat> describe the situation of Jesus calling this tax collector in the exact same scenario, talking about wineskins, the exact everything, 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 they use the name Levi. And in Mark, it says, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Luke just says, Levi, the tax collector. So we know that Levi is the name. It's the same person, the same situation, uh, but he's called Matthew, person named Levi. So let's just read Mark's account of Jesus calling Levi to follow him. So this is Mark chapter 2, and uh, verse 13 is where we'll start. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours do not? And he talks about the wineskin as well. And then he goes on and talks about the Sabbath. And Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's here to connect us directly to God. And may all of our religious activities um, follow that pursuit instead of our religious activities being the way that we connect to God. Let us connect directly to God and then have these uh, things like fasting to um, beautify and to give us vehicles for the love and relationship we have. They're not between us and God. They're a part of their participation between us and our Father. 
So in Luke's account, we won't read that one separately, but when he lists the calling, uh, he says again, Levi the tax, at the tax booth, he calls him and he had a great feast. So we put together Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get a fuller picture of this man, this man who was despised. But did you notice in Mark's account here, it says, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. We know he came from a small Galilean town. And we know in the first list of disciples, there was James, the son of Alphaeus. When Matthew himself lists that, he says, Matthew, the tax collector, but James, the son of Alphaeus. And there is no proof either way. There is a debate on this between scholars, but I wonder if Matthew and James were brothers. But Matthew was the outcast. He was the black sheep of the family. I don't know if they maybe even had different mothers, but James is the son of Alphaeus, and here Levi was also the son of Alphaeus. There may have been two Alphaeus fathers in that same small town. And uh, in the list, they don't put them together and say Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus. So there's reason for discussion there and just reflection. But I wonder if Matthew was an outcast from his people, and even if he and his brother were part of the disciples if he didn't consider himself equal to his brother, if he didn't consider himself as worthy as his brother. And when he puts his list together, he says, Matthew, who's a tax collector, but James, who's the son of Alphaeus. Well, Levi was the son of an Alphaeus as well. And it's clear that he recognized the, how he was despised. He recognized that. And yet Matthew goes on and, and talks about Jesus as the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. One of the highlights of the Gospel of Matthew is how many times it says, it was fulfilled what was written, thus as it was written, as it was prophesied. So Matthew, this educated um, Jewish person who was you know, connected to Greek society, most likely wrote the book of Matthew in Greek, um, He's able to say, look at the transition. This is what was and this is what is. This is what was prophesied and this is what Jesus came to do. Look at me. This is where I was. And he highlights people and situations that are, are before and after what God can do. He himself is an example of that. Uh, he's the only gospel writer to use the word ecclesia, which is church. You know, the, the gathering, the assembly of Christians. And he talks about when brother sins against you, you know, to be the church. He talks about, Simon, you are the church. I'll, I'll build my church upon this, this rock. You're the rock. Like, he, he brings these things in, talking about the church. He clearly comes from a Jewish background, but he stood in these two, the foot in each world, Jewish and Greek. And, and then at the end of his gospel, you have the Great Commission. You know, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, so go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Make disciples of all nations. So he's this, this intermediary between two worlds, much as Andrew was, but from an educated perspective, who was able to write what he saw. In Luke's gospel account, um, or yeah, Luke chapter 6, it lists the disciples in verse 13 there, and then it goes on in 6, uh, 20, um, or where is it? 17, rather, 6, 17. He came down and stood on a level place with his disciples, and crowds came to him. And verse 20, he lifted his eyes up on the disciples and say, Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you when people hate you. So the Beatitudes. 
So Luke has this account. It's a very simplified version. It's just like simple statements of the Beatitudes and lists Matthew as standing right there. Well, if you go back to the Gospel of Matthew, his version of the Beatitudes, we know that Luke was collecting information from others. He was the historian that wrote about Jesus' life, right? But Matthew was there. And so when you read Matthew's account of the Beatitudes, it's so full, so rich, so specific, so detailed. It's an eyewitness account. And that's what Matthew was able to do. He was able to look at the before and the after, and he was unshamed by Christ in a way that made him want to advocate and spread the good news that Christ sets the captives free. He restores people who have been shamed to fullness. They'll be called oaks of righteousness. You know, this Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted, and Matthew is one of those brokenhearted. You know, the last key that we could really focus on, and it's, very, it's a very significant one, is that Matthew's genealogy of Christ follows a different family line than Luke's does. Luke's family line follows um, the fathers and traces down to Joseph. Matthew's family, and, and goes back all the way to Adam. So it's kind of like a world family line, the fathers of the world, Adam on down to Jesus. But in Matthew, you see women interspersed. And the last sentence is, you know, mothered by Mary, um, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born. And it traces its way back to David and to Abraham. So it's like Matthew's genealogy of Christ is a more Hebrew perspective tracing from Father Abraham. But the fact that he's including women is actually five women listed in his genealogy leading up to Christ. And every single one of them is a restoration story, a miracle story, the unknown. So there's no women listed in Luke, so it's a very traditional Jewish genealogy, men. But Matthew makes the point to highlight these women. What was Matthew's background? You know, who was his mother? If Alphaeus was the father of James and Matthew, did they have different mothers? Like, what led Matthew to be this tax collector, a shameful position? If you grow up and you're in a healthy home and you're, you're solid and emotionally cared for, do you grow up and choose the most reviled position? And we know that Judas in the disciples was the one who carried the money bag, so that wasn't Matthew's job even. Judas was in charge of the money, and he actually skimmed off the top, it says. So Matthew wasn't about doing it for the money, and he wasn't, say, greedy or corrupt in that way, although maybe that was part of the before, maybe that's part of his guilt, but he was definitely despised, definitely had shame. And I just wonder, what was his mother, and what was his growing up story? Because sometimes when we start from a place of shame, we just continue on. We, we sort of self-destruct. We, we devolve. One thing leads to another and leads to another. How did I get here? And I wonder how Matthew got there. And the fact that in his genealogy, he focuses on these women who are part of Jesus' own genealogy, who God used in mighty and beautiful ways despite the horrible things in their lives. Um, I think it's indicative of what Matthew saw his worldview, who Jesus was to him and who he can teach us. And so I would like this to be kind of a teaching from Matthew to us, to look at family lines, to look at histories and say, you know, God's not done with us yet. And Jesus uses the most unlikely people. The five specific women in Matthew chapter 1 that are named uh, in verse 3, it says, Judah, who was the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. 
Now, Tamar had multiple husbands and she was abused and neglected by them and eventually ends up disguising herself because she's rejected by Judah, the brother who should love her and disguise herself as a prostitute on the side of the road and conceives by him who should have rightfully carried the family line on. But it's in this deception and this sexual immorality and this hurt and this abandonment, and all this shame husband after husband after husband, this poor Tamar, and then her own decisions that she made, she becomes the lineage of Christ, the Messiah. That is unlikely. That is far-fetched. That is not what you'd expect a God who's holy and pure to do if he's going to set up this perfect person. But Jesus is a redeemer and a Messiah, a savior anointed to bind up the brokenhearted. And so in that context, it makes perfect sense that the people in his family line would be examples of God restoring, 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 and then Jesus. And he still does it for us today. So Tamar is the first. In Matthew 1 verse 5, it says, Then Salmon, who is the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab, we know, was the prostitute in the city of Jericho where the spies go in and she hides them and saves them and says, please save me and my family. So a prostitute who didn't stay with the crowd, but who saw the spies and said, these are God's people, please save me, deliver me. Who Then she becomes part of the family line who continues on into marries into Israel, has a son named Boaz. God takes the unlikely and he unshames them. Instead of the shame of her former occupation, she has the honor of fathering and mothering, giving birth to children in the family line of Christ. The same thing happened for uh, her son and then grandson. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. So Boaz then marries Ruth. Do we see this other woman, this woman whose husband um, comes from a foreign land and follows Naomi and says, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And she comes there as a, as a single woman, unattached, unprovided for, uh, alone. She's just following her mother-in-law. And yet she, in her, all of her loss, finds this godly man who will redeem her, take her from being the outcast, the, the Gentile, right? The, the castaway, the foreigner. And God uses the foreigner as part of the family line of Jesus. She goes to Boaz. He marries her. He, he loves her. She's loved after being abandoned. Rahab is loved after being used and abused. Tamar is loved after being discarded and abandoned. This pattern is unbelievable and it's Jesus's history. It's his family tree. If we continue on, Matthew 1 verse 6 says, Jesse was the father of David the king and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So we know that to be Bathsheba. So this story where he has her husband killed and has adultery with her and then they have a child and lose the child, eventually they have Solomon who becomes king himself. So this woman who was taken advantage of, this adulterous relationship, that's not too much for God to redeem. Adultery, divorce, murder, right? Jewish, Gentile, like prostitution, this is not too much for God to unshame these people and restore them instead of mourning to have gladness, everlasting joy. So those are four. And then the fifth one is Mary herself. Matthew 1, verse 16 says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, 
who is called the Christ. Mary, a young girl, already betrothed, seemingly having this baby out of wedlock, what shame would she have experienced from people who did not believe her when she said, an angel came and spoke to me and this baby is from God, I'm still a virgin. Who would have believed her? What shame would she have experienced? And then Joseph, who loved her, despite this, because he believed what God had said. They had hope that God would bring the baby, as he said, and the baby would grow to be who he was prophesied to be. So when you look at Matthew, how he describes himself as a tax collector, how he was unshamed and became this, this feast thrower and this Bible book writer and this Jewish and Gentile um, includer. Like he's just this person who plays this beautiful, special role regardless of where he came from. And that's what Jesus does. He takes the weak and he makes the mighty for his glory. So I'll leave us with one passage from Romans and it's just a challenge for us to be the ones who bring this good news to the world that Jesus is here to save our souls and to deliver us from shame. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's the basic salvation message right there. If you confess with your mouth, you say it, Jesus is my Lord. And if you believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, means made right with God. And then with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So it's quoting scripture and it's putting it on Jesus and it's saying, this is him. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Hope does not produce shame, will not bring us into shame. This is Paul speaking, saying, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no, different, no distinction between Jews and Greeks. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, again, quote, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now here's the challenge. How are they to call on him in whom they haven't believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? So as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So please go out into your world today. And if you need to even sit in your prayer closet and go into your heart and share the good news that everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. The hope in Christ delivers us from shame because Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. May your hearts be bound up this week in new and permanent ways and may we be voices in the world so that others can recognize this is the good news. Body, soul, and spirit. Jesus comes to heal our bodies, save our souls, and bind up our broken hearts. Uh, may we experience joy in place of shame and may we experience life in place of regret and guilt and death this week. And may we talk to the people around us and throw some great feasts to tell everyone we know about Jesus who comes to save us and deliver us. God bless you this week, church.